during the past few weeks as we've been looking in Genesis together, the first book of the, of the Bible, we've seen uh, God's unfolding of his, his great plan of rescue and restoration. Um, we've seen his commitment to that promise to redeem and restore all things. Last week we saw how uh, God entered into this covenant with not just Noah, but all of creation um, as he pledged his preserving work in this world. Uh, to preserve our, uh, this world and mankind uh, in order for him to bring about that promised offspring, that one who is going to come, the great rescuer and restorer. And so this week we are uh, continuing our way through Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 9 again um, as we're seeing how far-reaching more and more we're getting this picture of how far sin is reaching and how great a rescuer and redeemer and restorer we actually need. So if you would turn with me to chapter 9 of Genesis, we're going to be in verses 18 through 29. If you're following along in one of the Bibles there uh, in your seats, I believe it's on chapter, I mean, page 7 this morning. So... So Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's not just story. It's not just, it's not some sort of myth, uh, but it is the true history of your work in this world, of you carrying out your great mission of rescue and restoration. Show us this morning your character, our need for you. Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts. And move us more and more to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Virginia, we had uh, a neighbor who taught shop at the local middle school. And he had a great track record of excellence, not just in his work, but also of safety. Uh, at his house, but also in, in his classroom. And he delighted to impart that that passion for excellence and safety to his students. 
And one, one day he was teaching them how to use a, a new piece of power equipment, uh, a saw, actually. And he had just finished telling them about how, uh, how powerful this machine was and, in fact, how dangerous it was. And you always needed to be on your guard. You needed to be alert uh, and, and careful around this machine um, because if you, if, if you get lazy and you neglect it at any time, it could, in fact, ensnare, jump up and get you, and you could be hurt uh, badly. Well, he just finished explaining this to his students, and as he turned around to do something on the machine, he didn't heed his own warning. And there was a piece of wood in there, and instead of cutting the machine off, he reached in there thinking that he could handle it himself, and the blade got him. It cut his, it severed his thumb and a couple of his fingers, and it took a lot of surgery. They were able to reattach it all, but he ended up losing a lot of the uh, use of his hand, and uh, he had to retire from his position as shop teacher in light of it. You see, it really didn't matter what kind of track record he'd had in the past of success and safety in the, in the classroom and in the shop. It only took a second uh, for him to be distracted and for him to get caught up and ensnared in this dangerous equipment that was there in the room. Something that we need to think about, I think, is we think we've seen the effects that sin has had in this world uh, and seen how dangerous is it with sin around and active. Who is anyone safe from its ensnaring grasp, from the dangers of sin? That's one thing we want to look at this morning as we look at our passage. Who, who is it that sin could ensnare? Did you notice uh, what happened in our, in our passage here this morning? In verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Uh, then later, his son Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his true brothers outside. And in the response to what Ham does, Noah responds with this, this curse. The, the two that get, we'll look at both of the aspects of their sin in a little bit, but the two who get ensnared by sin in this passage are Noah and Ham. Noah. Remember what we saw of Noah back in chapter 6. Noah was described this way. He was a righteous man. Noah, the man who was described as being blameless in his generation. Noah, the man who walked with God. Noah, the man who, in response to seeing the destruction of the flood, responds by recognizing his own sinfulness and responds in thanksgiving to God and in humble repentance before God for his sin. This, this is the guy who gets caught up and ensnared by sin. Noah, the one who has been entrusted to be the covenant representative of all of creation. This is the one who gets ensnared and trapped. If it could happen to Noah, could it happen to you and to me? Or Ham. Ham was one of Noah's sons. Ham, we could 
way that we could describe him as Ham as a child of the covenant. He experienced God's good covenant promises. He actually experienced by being delivered in the ark, God's preserving, rescuing work on his behalf. He saw God's sign placed up in the, in the clouds. He knew of God's faithfulness. He knew of God's uh, disposition towards sin. And yet Ham is the one as well who neglected, who strayed, and was caught and entrapped in sin. If it can happen to Noah, if it can happen to Ham, what about me? What about you? See, it seems here, even in this situation, it doesn't matter your track record. It doesn't matter how long in the past you have been successful at battling and maybe experienced victory over sin. What we're seeing here in this passage is at any moment, it could take just a second for us to, to lay our guard down, to not be vigilant and aware and alert, and sin can jump up and ensnare and entrap us. You see, this passage here, it's not talking to those people out there outside of the church. No, this passage is directly speaking to me and to you. To God's people. God is warning us and showing us and telling us, look, if it could happen to Noah, it could happen to you. Don't let it get into your mind and think as you read of accounts that are in, on, uh, in the newspaper or stuff that's going on in, in the world. That you would ever get to a place to where this would be the comment coming in your mind and your heart. That could never happen to me. This passage warns us and it says, oh yes, it could. Sin can easily and quickly ensnare and entangle the people of God. We need to be aware. We need to be alert. I don't know if you've seen over the past several months how prevalent these stories seem to come up in the news of pastors who have failed morally, jeopardizing their ministry, hurting people around them, it's happened multiple times. It's even happened in our own denomination. These are guys who are proclaiming God's word on a weekly basis. Supposedly, they understand and know the scriptures, the need of Jesus, and calling people to follow God. Yet they too struggle. They fail. They stumble. Sin entraps and ensnares them. That could be me. I need your prayers. If it could happen to Noah, if it could happen to these other guys, it could happen to me. It could happen to you. We need to be in one another's lives, praying for one another, encouraging one another. Little ones, those who have received God's covenant sign upon you, whose God has given you these promises You've experienced and know of God's, God's provision. You hear from His Word each week. God's warning to, to all of us is not to neglect God's mercy and His grace like Ham. Not to think, oh, it doesn't really matter if I follow along and obey my Heavenly Father or not. This passage is warning all of us and saying, 
sin can jump up and get you at any moment. You need to be alert and aware. It can ensnare anyone. Well, what kind of sin? What is this passage specifically talking about? We saw with, with Noah, his is a little easier to figure out, in verse 20, that Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. And uh, Noah's sin wasn't the planting of the vineyard. Noah's sin wasn't drinking of wine. Scripture's clear throughout uh, the rest of, uh, of the Bible that those are seen as God's good gifts. But we can go a little far with God's good gifts and His provision. And when it moves from appreciating God's good gifts to abusing God's good gifts, we move into the realm of sin. And that's what happened to Noah here. Noah moves from appreciating to abusing God's good gifts when he ends up drinking his wine, it tells us in 21, and becoming drunk. Uh, how easy can that be? Noah thinking, ah, oh, this is a God's gift, good gift to me. I'm going to enjoy it. And the next thing you know, unaware, he takes it a little too far. It doesn't have to be wine. How many of God's good gifts can we actually abuse and take advantage of and move from appreciating them to abusing them? Could it be that cupcake or that steak as well that we overindulge and move into gluttony? Is it there's something about that longing that we have to that satisfaction that you feel inside when you're you're tasting that in your mouth? And even though you've said, I know I shouldn't be eating anymore and you continue to go and go night after night. And maybe, in fact, instead of appreciating it as God's good gifts, maybe that's one way we go and can try to medicate ourselves. The hurt and and pain that we have in the world is through not God, but His good gifts. Was that what was happening in Noah? I don't know. Could it be the good gift of work or of family or of sexuality? How the many ways that we can distort and abuse God's good gifts. The warning here for us is to be alert and aware. But Moses here, the, the Moses is the one who's writing Genesis to uh, God's people. He seems to know the focus more on Ham than he does on Noah in this passage. Noah gets drunk, yes. He winds up laying uncovered with his clothes uh, somehow off or at least flipped up in his tent. And it tells us about Ham in verse 22 and following. And Ham the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and he goes on and he brings out this curse. What, What is it that Ham did here. I mean, it it says that uh, he saw the nakedness of his father. I mean, really? Just seeing your father naked is a a sin that involves such a drastic curse that we read about later? Was there not something more to it? Uh, some, Some think that this passage is talking about something more happened as Ham was in there with his uh, with his father. 
I think, though, if we look at the contrast between what Ham does and what Shem and Japheth do, really we're seeing that it was actually a look. There was nothing more than what was going on with his eyes that occurred as far as physically, uh, because in contrast, what Shem and Japheth do is they walk in backwards with this garment on their shoulders and cover up Noah, and they don't look on his, his nakedness. But still, a look. It's interesting, though, this this word for Saul that is used of Ham in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. It's not just an accidental look. It's one that's more describing uh, a prolonged searching of his father. There's... There's something in in Ham's look as he's gazing on his father that Ham is violating his father's privacy and his father's dignity. Ham here, one way that we could describe it, whereas what Noah was doing was abusing God's good gifts, what Ham is doing is he's abusing the image of God that is in Noah. See, All of us, as we've seen throughout Genesis so far, have been created in God's image, meaning we all have value and worth and dignity. It doesn't matter whether you are living in a way that reflects that dignity and reflects that honor and reflects that respect. You still are made in God's image, and we are supposed to respond to people with honor and dignity and worth and value. And Ham fails to do this. Ham views Noah as a means to his own satisfaction and his own gratification. He violates his privacy. Uh, he, um, he abuses and robs him of his dignity. Ham is using, he's objectifying Noah with this prolonged search and saying, Noah is a means to me satisfying and gratifying my own urges and desires. But he doesn't stop there as he's looking on his naked father. Um, He goes outside and he tells his brothers. In Scripture, when it talks about nakedness, sometimes it's talking about the physical not having clothes on. That was what was happening with Noah here. But also, uh, it describes shame. It can be figurative of describing shame. And so at the same time, Ham is going outside and he is spreading and talking about the shame of his father to his brothers. Notice, Ham isn't telling them this so that they can go in and help him. He doesn't participate at all with going in and covering his father. Ham seems interested just in maybe laughing at his father's expense or spreading and mocking his father because of the shame that he's experiencing due to his uh, indiscretions. How much in contrast is this to how we see God acting? You see, not only is Ham abusing the image of God in Noah, he's actually distorting the image of God in himself. Remember, we looked at this earlier. The image of God, one way to, to think about it is a mirror. And what we are is we are image bearers. We are supposed to be reflecting God's goodness and his character in the world. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? Something that it said about them uh, was that uh, they realized that they were naked. And they sought to cover themselves to hide. 
What was God's response, though, later on? We know their fig leaves were insufficient. We talked about that. God gave them something more significant to cover up their shame. So the character of the God that we're to reflect, when he observes shame in the midst of people's lives, he enters in with compassion and mercy into their shame and seeks to care for them and cover that. What does Ham do? He doesn't do that. The ones who are seeking with compassion to cover Noah's shame are Shem and Japheth. Ham is there to ridicule him. How does Ham's actions apply to us? Well, if we think about the first aspect of him, this gazing longingly on, on Noah's nakedness for his own desires. It's not too hard to make some of the connections in our, in our society and our culture. As prevalent as images are on the internet and on our TVs now, as far as internet pornography goes, and people who are bearing their nakedness for anyone to see. You see, our, our attitude and response shouldn't be, oh, well, because they're doing that, it means that we can look upon them any way we want. They don't mind. They don't care. Remember, the principle is, it doesn't matter if you're responding and acting with dignity and respect. The response is for us to reflect God and respond in a way that values and honors and respects them. We see them as having dignity and value and worth. And the response is to enter into uh, brokenness and hurt like that, not to gratify and objectify someone and to see how can I satisfy my own urgings and my own longings at someone's expense, but to view them as having value and worth. Our response should be uh, to avoid those things, to seek to cover them up. Now, I remember one, I was reading an article that one mother, the way that her, this family was discipling their kids with that, if some sort of image came on, on TV uh, in order to, not, to, to begin to shape their hearts to not objectify men or women, uh, depending on what they were wearing, this is what they say. Oh, they need some privacy. Turn around, they need some privacy. What are they doing? They're practicing verbally and with their, their body and their eyes, this practice of covering up nakedness and shame. Well, I think that's a pretty good practice. But some of us, it's not as easy as that. It's been going on a long time in our heart and our lives. where We're not prone to look away from this nakedness, but we're drawn and attracted to it. God's call to us is to remind us these aren't objects. These are people created in the image of God who in this industry are wounded and abused and hurt and manipulated and taken advantage of. They do not exist for us to use them to satisfy our own urgings and longings, but they are created in the image of God and we need to show them respect and love and care. But what about the other side of shame? How easy and how frequent does it happen on Facebook? To ridicule and mock someone's errors, their indiscretions, their sins, their shame. Share it, tag somebody in it, post it, laugh about it. All at someone else's expense. We're image bearers. We enter into people's shame. We cover their shame. We care for them just as God has done for us. It's in response to that, that on the Facebook walls of 
Christians, this should never take place. We pursue those who are hurt and who have been in situations of shame to care for them and love them, not in Ham's way, but in Shem's way and Japheth's way, because that is God's way, and that's how he's responded to us. But still, maybe we ask, but it's just a look. It can't hurt, can it? It doesn't hurt anyone. What if they don't even know? I mean, Noah in this situation, he, he knew, but what about the effects of sin? When do they show up if they do it all? I mean, a look, come on. We see in this passage that sometimes the effects of sin show up immediately. Maybe that's your own experience. It was Noah's here, right? In verse 20 and 24, we saw that uh, pretty immediately after Noah, not he didn't deserve what Ham did to him, but after Noah's uh, abusing of God's good gifts, uh, he experiences the effects of that sin through passing out, putting himself in these, these shameful and undignifying situations. Uh, but he also experienced firsthand the effects of Ham's sin against him immediately and he, as he found out about it. Uh, but there's, an, there's another aspect of it where we see the effects of sin in this passage sometimes are delayed. Uh, notice that um, in this passage over and over again, when it talks about Ham, it describes him as Ham the father of Canaan. Ham, the father of Canaan. Ham, the father of Canaan, right? Well, uh, notice in verse 25 when Noah states these curses and these blessings. He says, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. Uh, See, Ham didn't necessarily immediately experience the consequences and effects of his sin. But we may ask, why is Canaan the one who's punished? I mean, it was Ham who did the sinning. Why is the son, it's Ham who did the sinning. Why is the son of Ham the one who's cursed? Did you notice that? Ham sinned. He's the father of Canaan. Canaan is the one who experiences the curse. We may say, that's, that's not fair. Why not punish Ham? Well, it's interesting as we have looked through Genesis, what, something that we have seen is that we are all connected in our relationships and in our world. And the way that we live has an effect on all of those around us. Remember, Adam and Eve's sin, they affected one another, but it also affected creation around them. Uh, our sin, too, affects other people. Uh, sometimes it affects people immediately. Sometimes it's delayed. But here, what's going on, God isn't punishing Canaan for something Ham did. That's a, it's actually a principle in Israel's law. If we look later, remember Moses is writing this, and he also uh, was, wrote a book called Deuteronomy, which lays out a lot of the rules for God's laws for God's people. And one of them said, the father isn't to be put to death for the sin of the son. The son's not to be put to death for the sin of the father. You're punished and experience, you're, you're punished for your sins. Uh, but you can experience the consequences of others' sins. Uh, 
we suffer punishment for our own sin, but consequences will affect others around us. And what we end up seeing is Canaan here isn't being punished for Ham's sin. Canaan is actually will experience and suffer for Canaan's own sin. Because you see, this is the way it works. Ham is pursuing this lifestyle that's uh, denying the image of God in people and, and seeing people as objects to gratify himself. What we see that is that plays out in his lineage, not in all of his children, because Canaan is the only one who's cursed, but it specifically begins to affect Canaan. How long was Canaan under the influence of Ham? Did he see Ham's actions, his attitudes, his comments, his subtle glances as people would walk by in their community. And it began to shape the way he engaged and interacted in the world. And in fact, it continued to unfold. And as we look at the line of Canaan and these nations that are listed, we'll be in chapter 10 next week, but listen to those who come and are descendants of Canaan. Uh, In verse 16 of chapter 10, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimorites, the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed to the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zeboim as far as Lashah. As Genesis unfolds and as Scripture unfolds, what we see that's true of these Canaanites is they take that sin of Ham and they expand it and they go deeper and deeper and deeper. In fact, their their culture was known of being um, uh, sexually uh, exploitative. exploitative. Uh, They exploited people sexually. That was a part of their worship. Um, uh, And so this sin of Ham... Uh, had influence in the life of his son, and it began to pass on throughout their generations as the sin had a delayed effect and consequence. Canaan here is being actually is going to end up being punished and cursed for his own sin, but we all have to realize your looks, these subtle things that you think will not hurt anyone, what Scripture is showing us is that it can have subtle and delayed effects in future generations in our children, in our relationships, and other people that we know. They can also suffer in light of our sin. In America, too often we have this individualistic response that says, as long as I can't really see that it's hurting anybody, it's okay. What this passage is telling us is you don't realize the connections and the effects that your sin can have and influence other people. But what kind of hope is there? What kind of hope is there for sinners like this? For sinners like you and like me, who sin in the way of Noah and Canaan and Ham. Well, notice in this curse, there's also blessing. In verse 26, it says, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Part of God's blessing that Noah pronounces to Shem and to Japheth is this God's covenant promise is continuing. Notice, God is, Yahweh is going to be the God of Shem. The way that the promise is going to continue to work itself out in the world is through the line of Shem. But it says something about Japheth. 
God will enlarge Japheth and he will dwell in the tents of Shem. That means that at some point in the future, these, the line of Japheth is not going to be outside of the covenant promises of Yahweh. They're going to dwell within the, the tents of Shem and experiencing the goodness and the provision and the care of this God. Japhethites will come to know the God of the Shemites or the Semites, the God of Israel. Because when the, the promised one comes, the nations are going to be brought under his care and his rule, and he will dream, redeem and restore them all. But still, what about Canaan? Servant, servant, servant. What hope is there for him? What's well, interesting, from the Shemites is going to come a guy named Abraham. Uh, Abraham, is. we're going to read about him in two more chapters. But it's going to be through him that this uh, promise comes. And God has promised Abraham and those who descend from him, Israel, this promised land. But guess who lives in the promised land at this time? The Canaanites. That's one reason we're seeing here. God's promising he's going to give the land to to Abraham's seed. But what they need to realize is you're not getting the land because you're so good. No, I'm taking the land from the Canaanites because of their sin. So don't get so proud of yourself. But this, what, this is what God says to Abraham. It's going to be 400 years because the sins of the Amorites, who is one of these tribes, isn't complete yet. In other words, what God is saying is, Abraham, I'm giving them time to repent. 400 years to repent and turn to me. And if they do, they will experience my redemption and my salvation. But you know what? They don't. When it's time for Israel to go in the promised land, the, the nations of the Canaanites arm themselves up and they rebel against the God of Israel, the one true God. But get this. God doesn't turn completely away from them. What we'll find out in Joshua is that there's this one woman, Rahab. Interesting enough, Rahab, a Canaanite. Not just a Canaanite, a prostitute. She says, I believe this is the one true God and I want to turn to him. She calls out in mercy and hope to the God of Israel. And he receives her. She doesn't become second class in Israel. She's welcome in as a full member. In fact, if we skip ahead to the book of Matthew and we read the genealogy of Jesus, Remember, we said, we've, as we've been going through here, this promised offspring that God gave in Genesis 3, who was going to come and defeat the serpent, was Jesus. God entering into the flesh. But listen to this genealogy. I'm going to skip down and not read the whole part. But in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Matthew, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. God gave these promises to David that he would have an offspring that would never cease to sit on the throne, one who would rule forever. That was Jesus. David's great-great-grandmother was Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. That means that Jesus is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of a Canaanite prostitute. In World War II, uh, there was a U.S. soldier named Roddy Edmonds, um, and he was captured by the Germans, and he's put into a, a POW camp. 
And the, the German leaders of this POW camp knew that there were some Jewish, Jewish prisoners as well, not just soldiers, but Jews in this camp. And they came out one day and said, um, for all the Jews to make themselves known and to step forward. And what Roddy Edmonds, he was uh, Sergeant Major, I believe, he was the, the highest ranking American soldier in the camp. He gave the order to all American soldiers there, step forward. They all stepped forward. The German officer walked up and he said, you command your men to step back or I'm going to kill you. He said, well, you're going to have to kill every single one of us because we're not stepping down. And eventually, the German officer backed down. You see, Roddy Edmonds, in order to rescue and redeem these prisoners of war, was not afraid to be identified and in fact become one if it meant their rescue and their restoration. What hope do we have for sinners who sin in the way of Ham, who sin in the way of Noah, who sin in the way of you and I? Jesus says, I am not afraid to step forward and to be identified as a Canaanite prostitute, as an internet pornography user, as a drunkard, as an abuser of my, my children, as a workaholic. Name the sin. Jesus says, I will identify as that when I take your place on the cross and suffer what you deserved. And I will rescue and I will redeem you and I will restore you. That is the hope that we have. Who can sin and snare? Every single one of us. And it can take all sorts of forms and ways as it works itself out in our lives. Its effects can be instant. They can be delayed. But the hope that we have is that Jesus, our great rescuer and redeemer, enters into our shame. And as we look to him in faith, he covers us. He identifies with us. He rescues us. And he redeems us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what in the world did we just read and see? Why would you respond like this? Jesus, why would you die for things you didn't do to redeem and rescue your people? We're humbled by your grace. We're humbled by your mercy. Shape and change our hearts. We need you. In Christ's name, amen.